Well, have you ever been discouraged? If you have, you know exactly what that feels like. Maybe you're feeling a little down and out. Maybe a little overwhelmed by burdens and expectations uh, through some of the frustrations you might be experiencing. It just has you weighed down and you feel this burden physically, emotionally, mentally exhausted. I believe COVID-19 has been overwhelmingly difficult for many, many people. The stress and strain of working from home, perhaps homeschooling, trying to juggle your own work while keeping your kids uh, focused on their schoolwork has been incredibly challenging. You're concerned for your children, you're concerned for their health, you're concerned for your own health, you've been isolated, you've been alone, you can't wait to get out and have some contact with people. The financial impact, the situations of this are absolutely endless. And everybody has had their lives disrupted in some way. And my sense is, as I talk to people, that there's just this tiredness and this exhaustion and this discouragement that sets in. I think it's particularly important for us then to learn from Elijah this morning. We're going to look at his testimony. It's in a current series that we're doing right now, uh, looking at characters who were ordinary people through whom God did extraordinary work. Sometimes that work is not just through the person, but it is in the person, a work of healing, of transformation, of restoration. Elijah is said to be one of the most colorful prophets of the Old Testament. He really is that quintessential prophet. He shows up many, many times in the New Testament. He's mentioned several times. James describes him in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Elijah was human as we are. And I love that because it just reminds us that that we could put this prophet, we can put him on a pedestal and think that he's kind of this almost divine being. And James puts it in perspective when he says he was human just as we are. We're introduced to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. Here he enters onto the stage of biblical history and he seemingly comes out of nowhere. Nothing is shared really about his ancestry, nothing about his calling as a prophet, and so there's really very little information. He just sort of appears there at the beginning of chapter 17. And so what we do know of him, we learn then from his experiences and what is written about him. We know that he's a servant of God. That was his heart's desire, was to be available to God, to be used by God. He's a man of prayer. He was uh, intimate in in his relationship with God. And those two qualifications alone, being a servant and being a, being a man of prayer, really qualified him for this role of a prophet. A prophet had two main tasks. One, he would foretell. Now, that's not in terms of, you know, predicting the stock market or the winning lottery numbers or anything like that, but in terms of outlining the consequences that God intends. Most often, a prophet's message was in the form of, if you repent, then this will happen. Or, if you don't repent, then expect these consequences. So, he would foretell, and he would forthtell. His responsibility was to proclaim wickedness for what it is. If Israel was not following God, or if the kings weren't, then they would hear from Elijah, and he would deliver a message, as unpopular as it might be, to address some of their disobedience, some of their sin, and just where they have gotten kind of off the rails. And so really, as a prophet, he was God's spokesperson. 
So it required that he would be willing to serve God, that he'd be a man of prayer so that he could hear from God, he would receive a message, and then he would pass it along to the people basically on behalf of God. So that was his role. What about some of his experiences? I think it's helpful for us to know a little bit about some of Elijah's experiences. And uh, if you haven't reviewed his life uh, recently, I encourage you to just go and read 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19, because in those chapters you really capture the highlights of his life and service as a prophet. First, he delivers a terrible message of drought in the land. He, he, he tells King Ahab that there's going to be no rain, and it's not going to rain for about three and a half years. Well, you can imagine what the end result of that would be when there's no, no rain, no crops growing, ultimately drought, ultimately famine. Then he's directed uh, by God to go and hide. Because Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they weren't very happy with this message, as you can imagine. And so God provides for him. He directs him, in fact, to go and hide. And he goes and um, hides uh, in the, by near a brook. And this brook is going to provide water to sustain Elijah. And then it says that God commanded the ravens to bring him food. Just think about that. Twice a day, these ravens... Uh, intentionally and deliberately brought food for Elijah to eat, and that would, would sustain him. And so God miraculously provides all at the command of God. God then miraculously provides for Elijah again, because eventually the brook itself does uh, dry up because there's been no rain. And so he sends Elijah to a widow, and he, God himself, has directed this widow to provide for Elijah. Now, the problem was that she herself had planned to make one last meal because all she had was a, was a handful or a small jar, a handful of flour in a jar and, and just a little bit of olive oil. And so she was going to make one last meal for her and her son. And then because of the drought and because of the famine, they would have nothing left to eat. And she expected that they would just die. But the Lord, speaking through Elijah, promises that if she provides bread for Elijah first, can you imagine the tension she felt? Here's this man of God delivering this message, make this bread for the prophet Elijah, and even Elijah delivering that message could have appeared very self-serving. Yeah, you know, just bring me that last meal. And so the tension she felt between serving um, this meal to Elijah or having one last meal for her son. What an what a awful predicament uh, to be in. But she decides that she's going to go ahead and do this because Elijah promises that if she provides the bread for Elijah first, this jar of flour would never be used up and this jug of oil would never run dry and until God ultimately will send rain on the land. In other words, she was always going to have enough, that God was going to be faithful to provide for her and meet all of the needs that she had, even if she thinks it's the last. Can you imagine the miraculous provision of that? Because, of course, she goes ahead and um, uh, she makes the bread and serves it to Elijah. And in verse 15 of chapter 1 Kings chapter 17, I love this. He says, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Just the faithfulness of God to provide and the miraculous provision 
of him being able to provide in that way. Well, tragedy does ultimately strike, though, and the widow's son dies. And uh, Elijah is, is heartbroken about this, and so he cries out to God. And in verse 22, we read, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the Lord's and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. So you get a sense of these ex- incredible, powerful experiences that Elijah is experiencing in his life, the provision of, of food by ravens, the provision of, of food by a widow with, with oil and flour that never runs out, a, a, a son that then dies, a son that is then raised to life. And it seemed that wherever Elijah went, he experienced God's miraculous provision and this, these dramatic demonstrations of his power. Perhaps none more dramatic than the, the showdown on Mount Car- Carmel recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. And this is one of those Sunday school stories. So if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard uh, this story many, many times. But if it's new to you, you need to just know a couple of things. One was that King Ahab, under the direction of his wife Jezebel, they had introduced Baal worship to the Israelites. And so in other words, they were turning um, the Israelites' hearts away from God. And the result was that they were said to have done more evil than any other king. That's quite the resume to have, isn't it? You know, uh, for Ahab to come along and say, yeah, God said that I've done more evil. I'm a bad guy. I'm a bad dude. So Elijah comes along and he challenges Ahab, the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, another god that had led to more idolatry. And he challenges them to a fire-making challenge. Um, Quite different than the fire-making challenges that you might see on like Survivor or something like that. Because uh, Ahab, or sorry, Elijah, he lays out the challenge. He says to Ahab, he says, you have your prophets, build an altar. We'll each get a bull. We'll cut it into pieces. We'll, We'll put it on the altar. And then you call out to your gods. I'll call out to my God. And whoever answers by fire, he is ultimately God. And so, Elijah, I think full of confidence, says, you go first. And, uh, and so, if you're familiar with the scene, you know that this doesn't ultimately go very well for the prophets of Baal. They pray, they dance, they, uh, they, this goes on for hours, and, and nothing is happening. There's absolutely no response from their god, Baal. And I like this event because... Uh, Elijah then starts to chirp the prophets of Baal a little bit. He's kind of the ultimate trash talker, and he starts to taunt them. And it's, it's awesome. He's just like, shout louder. You know, the implication being that maybe your God is a little hard of hearing, and he can't hear you. I mean, surely he is a God. I mean, the true God should be able to, this should be no problem. He says, maybe he's deep in thought or busy, busy. And those two together kind of have this con, con, uh, um, idea that they convey this idea that, that maybe he's, you know, taking care of some business. He's relieving himself, and he couldn't be bothered to, to answer their cries for fire. He says maybe, they're, maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. And in all of these taunts and all of these little chirps, he's, he's really humanizing this God and, and saying that your God is nothing. You, you, you're not getting any response from your God because 
he's no God at all. And so this went on all day and into the evening, and I really think Elijah was enjoying himself. And finally in verse 29, it sums it up just perfectly. It says, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. And now it's Elijah's turn. He rebuilds the altar. He then goes so far to, to, to dig a trench around the altar, and he stacks the wood there, and then he cuts the bull into pieces, and he lays the bull for the, for the offering on the wood. And then he does something remarkable. It's almost like, I am going to to leave absolutely no doubt to the power of God. And he takes four jugs of water and he pours it all over the altar. And he has some people helping him and he says, well, do it again. So four more jugs of water. And then he says, do it a third time. So now there's 12 jugs of water that have completely soaked this altar, have soaked the wood, have soaked the bull, have literally filled the trench that he had dug around it. Now, if you've ever been camping, you know that wet wood doesn't burn so well. But Elijah prayed, and God immediately answered, and fire fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones that he used. It even evaporated the water that was in the trench. And through this incredibly dramatic scene, There was no doubt in people's minds who the true God was. Because when the people saw this, they fell on their faces and they cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It's absolutely amazing, incredible, powerful. And Elijah has a front row seat to this dramatic demonstration of the power and presence of God. And as if that wasn't enough, Elijah prayed and finally After all of those years, God sent a heavy rain. Now, I share these highlights because I believe it sets the stage for what happens next. Chapters 17 and 18 are all about God and His miraculous provision and His dramatic power. And Elijah's right in the middle of it all. God doing absolutely extraordinary work through this ordinary servant who was as human as we are. And what happens next shows us just how human Elijah was. And it's from these verses in chapter 19 that I believe that we can learn something really important about discouragement. And so, as we carry on into chapter 19, we see a little bit about Elijah's circumstances. Because, of course, as you would expect, Ahab goes home and he tells his wife Jezebel everything that Elijah had done Now, I should add a little part that I missed is after he had this victory, he actually had the prophets of Baal taken away and slaughtered, and I don't understand all of that, but it happened, and there are 450 dead prophets of Baal. And Jezebel is angry. And so she sends Elijah a death threat and basically says, listen, Elijah, you are as good as dead. If by this time tomorrow... 24 hours notice, your life isn't like one of them, meaning like one of her dead prophets. Now, after the experiences that Elijah had, you would expect, you know, he's got to be feeling good. He's encouraged. He's on top of the world. He just had this incredible mountaintop experience. I mean, he, he defeated 
through the power of God, the prophets of Baal. You would think that when he hears about this serious threat on his life, he would just shrug it off and just say, bring it on. I'm ready. Bring me what you got. I'm not afraid of you. But that's not how he responds. And verse 3 tells us, matter of fact, that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Probably didn't see that one coming, did we? I mean, we may not even be that familiar with, story, with this story, and yet we may have predicted the discouragement that Elijah faced because that's real life. We have probably all had experiences, these mountaintop experiences that have led us right down into some of the deepest valleys. Highs followed by lows. This may be true in your own life. Right? You have the, the sheer joy of welcoming a newborn baby into your family, only to maybe a few months later uh, go through the death of a parent. Or maybe you, you got the joy and the delight of coming to Canada with the, the hope of a bright future for you and your family, followed by the hardship of finding a job and settling into a new culture. Maybe you, 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 you find a job and you're just thrilled about it only to be laid off a few weeks or months later because of a global pandemic that no one ever saw coming. Maybe you're experiencing health and vitality and you're feeling good. And all of a sudden there's something that needs to be checked out and the diagnosis of cancer. I mean, honestly, whatever your reality is, now, currently, or maybe something from your past, you know exactly what Elijah's gone through here. You know that good times don't always last. I think of this for, for if you've ever gone to like summer camp, and I know some of the students here, you've gone to Camp Caroline and, and camps like it, and, and you go, and, and I, what I love about camp is they strip away all of the distractions, right? You can't bring your electronics, and you can't bring your devices, and you can't bring your smartphones. It's just you with a bunch of other people, and you're singing songs, and you're hearing messages, and you're meeting around the campfire. And in that environment, God does amazing things. And you get onto this sort of spiritual high, and then you come home only to experience the reality that, well, my parents are, are still fighting, and my friends are still picking on me, and let me just go back to the mountaintop. And we all want to go there. And so, these circumstances that Elijah was experiencing led directly to his discouragement. And here's where we see just how ordinary Elijah is, how human he is, how he realizes his own weaknesses. Because he was afraid and he runs for his life. And he doesn't just like run down the street. He flees to southern Judah to a town named Beersheba. Then he goes an, a whole other day into the wilderness, into the Negev desert. And he comes to a broom bush or a tree. The only thing that was going to provide a little bit of shelter, a little bit of shade in the hot desert sun. And he sits down and he prays. And what he prays in that moment reveals really the depth of his discouragement. He's feeling deep despair and he's overcome with feelings of, of, of failure. And so 
He just ultimately prays that he would die. I have had enough, Lord, he prays. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, for a servant of God and a man of prayer, it's probably a good thing that God didn't answer this prayer immediately. And that's true for us. When God says no to one of our prayers, we should take that as a sign that it's probably for our own good, that maybe He's protecting us from something. But in any event, this prayer reveals the kind of the state of Elijah's heart, his soul. He's tired physically. He's hungry. He's emotionally drained. After all that he had been through, all that he had experienced, he was physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted and alone. And that's never a good place to be. Simply put, Elijah is not in a very good place. But we can learn from this. We can see how Elijah dealt with this discouragement. We can learn some lessons from his life. More importantly, we discover that it is actually through the provision of God, through the faithfulness of God to provide This God who is overwhelmingly good and kind and gracious and loving and faithful is present with us in the valleys too. And so how did God provide for Elijah that helped him deal with his discouragement? I'm just going to give you five things this morning, and I hope these are five things that you can take away this morning. The first is that God gave him rest. He gave him rest. Because after Elijah prayed that he would die, he just simply laid down and fell asleep. I wonder if he was just sitting on that tree and maybe he just fell out of, over out of just pure exhaust, exhaustion. He's fatigued. He, he, he would have had that look. I don't know if you've ever had this, but, but you, you know, you look at somebody and it's like, boy, you look really tired. And, and there's two responses. One is, I really am and you're honest, or one is, um, wow, do I really look that bad? <laughs> but sometimes when we're dealing with stress and lots of emotions, we even have difficulty sleeping. So the fact that Elijah did fall asleep, I believe, is really a gift from God. Because sleep or rest is the, one of the very first things that I believe we need to do in order to deal with discouragement. I mean, it seems almost counterproductive because we're conditioned to think that, you know what, I'm discouraged. I need to just get out of it somehow. I just need to do something. But when we're tired, and if you've been there, you know this to be true, you you can't think straight. Everything is exaggerated. Our problems seem bigger than maybe they really are. I love how the psalmist declares in Psalm 127, verse 2, he says, for he, that is God, grants sleep to those he loves. Those he loves. So sleep is in fact a gift from God. Some of you know my story that in 2007, it was before we moved uh, back to Edmonton, I experienced um, just a total uh, uh, burnout. And uh, 
I was exhausted and fatigued and worn out at every level. And so uh, it was recommended that I take a sabbatical. And I would often say that one of the, the greatest things that I did every day almost during those first months was have a nap. That I just, I just needed to allow the physical rest to clear my mind, to put me in a place where we could kind of move on and not just, uh, as we'll see here for Elijah too, it's just that issue of rest is so important. And I experienced that firsthand. And I want to say to you today that if you're tired and you're discouraged, maybe you're even having trouble sleeping at night, then what you need to do is you need to pray and ask God that He might grant you sleep. Because sleep we know scientifically restores and it heals. Sleep is vital to good health. And so this idea of rest is not just through sleep. I want to also extend it into the, the experience of the Sabbath. You see, the, the Sabbath is a gift that God gives to us. And he says, you know what? You have six days to do your work. Rest on the seventh day. And it's not just as a reward from working hard for six days, but it's really in preparation for the next six days of what God has in store for you. I grew up uh, with a very, very strict interpretation of what Sabbath meant and what we could and couldn't do. And basically, the only thing we could do was nap. Couldn't play sports. You know, we couldn't do anything really with our friends so much. Well, friends was kind of one of those things that was a little bit, bit loose. But as long as you, you know, hung out with friends but, but didn't have a lot of activity, like don't break a sweat kind of thing. But one of the things that was instilled in me is like, what else do you do? It's kind of boring. There's not any good TV on Sunday afternoons at least 30 years ago. So you have a nap. And it just became part of my routine. I'm just, I just nap every Sunday. I still do. And it's restorative and it's helpful. And so I believe that we ignore the Sabbath at our own peril. And someday I'm going to have a fuller message on that because I think it's just so important. But recognize that gift, rest is a gift from God. Secondly, God gave Elijah refreshment. Verse, uh, second half of verse 5, an angel comes and touches him, which I think is significant, the, the, the importance of touch, and tells him to get up and eat something. And he discovers that right next to his head, there's some freshly baked bread and a jar of water. And it says that he ate and drank, and guess what? He had another nap. But bread and water was a basic meal. You can see how God here is concerned even about our physical needs. You see, when we get tired, we get lazy, we don't really concern ourselves about proper health and nutrition, and it is important, so we should. It's one of the things that God uses to, to restore us and to refresh us, to help lift us out of those times where we're discouraged. And so if we're feeling down and discouraged, don't underestimate the importance of paying attention to what you eat and drink. You see this, uh, and I'm not, I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a counselor, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, but, but so much of what we experience in life, this discouragement, I'm going to call it like a situational depression, a depression that comes on us because of our circumstances, which is very, very different than a clinical depression that requires maybe some medication or requires some, some kind of therapy in order to be treated properly. 
But when we experience these like difficult events in our lives, when you're going through incredibly stressful moments, we get rest and we get refreshment because we need to watch then what we eat and what you drink. You need to get some good exercise. These are just common, scientifically common sense things that we should do. And I think we see it come right off these pages here in in terms of Elijah. He slept. That was the first thing he did. And then he ate and drank and restored himself physically. Again, on my sabbatical in 2007, I Besides napping, I would try to run or, or walk most days. Most recently, Tina and I have just rediscovered the joy of biking. I, I think last year my bike didn't even make it out of storage. It was just kind of a crazy year. Maybe it's even been a few years where we just haven't gone out and done enough exercise. But this year we're trying to get out and ride a little bit more. It's been life-giving for me, and it's so refreshing. Just, just try it. Because sometimes to clear your mind, to to declutter your soul, you just need to go for a good walk or a bike ride or find something to get you moving. And know that sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is to get some rest, followed by refreshment. Thirdly, God gave Elijah a place of refuge. So we pick up the text in verse 7. The angel comes back, wakes Elijah up, tells him to eat something, because, uh, eat some more because he has a long journey ahead of him. And, and just how long this is will become clear in a second. So the food that he's eating is now strengthening Elijah and it's providing energy that he needs to ultimately go on a journey of 40 days and 40 nights. And his destination is Horeb, the mountain of God. This is where Pastor Adam took us when, we, when he looked at, at the character and the life of Moses. And Moses' experience with the burning bush was on the same mountain. And on that mountain was a cave, and Elijah was able to spend a night in this cave. Now, just to add some perspective, Horeb or Mount Sinai, it was 400 kilometers from where he was in Beersheba, um, And so since Elijah traveled for 40 days, he would have had to average about 10 kilometers a day, which is very doable, although 40 days in a row is is a lot. But it's very likely that that Elijah maybe didn't go straight there. Some commentators believe that maybe he wandered in the wilderness a little bit, and maybe some of the rugged terrain ultimately slowed him down, those kind of things. But it was about the symbolism and the importance of the 40 days of of preparation. And the cave on this mountain became a place of refuge for Elijah. It was a safe place. It was a place where God invited him to vent. And the invitation is in the question where God speaks to Elijah and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it was just an invitation that gave Elijah permission to complain, to vent a little bit, and complain he did. Because there's a, there's a bit of a sense of some self-pity here. But when God asks him, what are you doing here? It, it really invites Elijah to do a little bit of self-assessment. Maybe there's some things he needs to confess. Maybe there's some sin. Maybe there's some fears. Maybe there's some frustrations, some feelings. All wrapped up in this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, all God, Lord God Almighty. Translation, I've worked hard. I've done a good job. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I should be rewarded for it. But God isn't obligated to reward us 
for our work or for our service. Then he says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your servants to death with the sword. Translation, I'm a failure. I've got no results to speak of. I've got nothing to show for it. I've been wasting my time. And then he says, I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Now we know that the killing part was true because there is a death threat on his life. But the claim that he was the only believer left was simply not true. But again, because of his exhaustion, things are exaggerated. He's not thinking clearly. And he's feeling sorry for himself. I'm the only one left. And what's interesting to me is that in that moment, God doesn't refute or rebut or rebuke Elijah. He just lets him vent. Because I believe he provided this cave as a place of refuge, a safe place that would just allow him to talk, to get out what he's trying to process. A number of years ago, I did a leadership program with Arrow Ministries. And so much of the theory and the structure behind this program was to create, as the president liked to call it, a safe harbor. And he used that analogy because he loved to sail big sailing boats out on the BC coast. And when the storms would rage, what they would do is they would seek a safe harbor that was protected from the wind and the waves and the storms. And so this whole idea was to create a safe place where people in ministry who are trying to sort things out in their own life could come and talk and learn and grow in an intentionally safe environment. I believe that our homes, our small groups, they need to be places of refuge, that we all need a safe place where no conversation is off limits, but that there can be a place where we can come and where we, where, when we've been um, out and, and facing some tough stuff, just to be able to find some comfort, some love, some warmth, some acceptance, some belonging, even as we're processing the stuff that God's doing in our lives. And so we need to create safe places. Parents, that's what you do for your kids in your homes. Make that a safe place. That they know that if they're being teased at school, they've got parents who understand and are, and are working to, to address those issues. Whatever the situation is, just know that, that when they come home and they put down their books, or when, when, when a spouse comes home and they put down their briefcase, that it's just like, ah, the demands are different now. The expectations are different. I can be myself. And it's a safe place, a place of refuge. Fourthly, he gave him a revelation of himself. After Elijah was able to vent, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And again, maybe this is something that you're familiar with, but first there's a powerful wind, but there's no sign of the Lord in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, but again, there's no sign of the Lord. And then a fire, and still no sign of the Lord. All of these things, the the wind, the earthquake, the fire, they're regarded by Israel as visible signs of of, of God's activity. And fire was commonly indicated, indicating the presence of God. But God wasn't in any of these spectacular signs. God came with a gentle whisper. He reminded Elijah of his power and 
revealed his presence through a still small voice. And they repeated the very same conversation that they had just had verses before. You see, God is still in the business of revealing himself to us. The Bible is God's self-revelation. In it, he discloses himself to us. And when we read it, we discover that he's good and kind and loving and merciful and faithful. And, through, and so it's through our Bible reading and through prayer, it's through times of silence that we can hear the still small voice of God. And yes, solitude. It's good in this situation to be alone. And so oftentimes when people think of some of those very basic spiritual disciplines, they say, you know, I just don't have time to do it. And my answer to that is, turn on the screen time tracker on your smartphone and see how much time in any given week you spend on your device and compare it to the time that you spend in silence and solitude before God, maybe in your own little cave where you can hear from God. So God gave him rest, he gave him refreshment, he gave him a refuge, and he gave him a revelation. And lastly, he gave him a responsibility. You might even say that God recommissioned Elijah. He gave him something to do. Verse 15, the Lord told Elijah to go back, to go to, and to do this. And specifically, it was to anoint three people for specific tasks. That is what he needed to do. That was his new commission that he needed to follow up. And when we're discouraged, there's only so much resting and refreshing that we can do. Sooner or later, we just need to get at it. Like the Nike slogan says, right? Just do it. We can't stay in the cave. We got to get out and do something. What is God calling you to do? That's the question we all have to ask. What is the task he's given you? How do we reach out to others? In this season of, of you know, Uh, sheltering in place or sheltering at home or self-isolation or any of these other things, what is it that you can do? Maybe you should just call somebody this afternoon. Encourage them. Stop waiting because here's probably what's happening. There's some people that are going, you know, nobody's calling me. I'm feeling all alone. I'm feeling forgotten. I'm feeling a little bit like Elijah. I'm feeling a little discouraged. You know, if that's you, then pick up the phone, call somebody, send a text, Send an email. Start the conversation. Know that part of the way that God helps us out of our discouragement is that he gives us a responsibility and something to do. So he provides a place of refuge. He reveals himself to us. We enter into a conversation with God. He reminds us again of who he is. And so at the very end here, he gives him this little gentle rebuke. He says, oh, by the way, Elijah, you aren't the only one left. There's a remnant of 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. In other words, he just says, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're in a community. And when you're part of a church, you're part of this community. And so one of the greatest things that we can do right now in this season, I believe, is really be mindful of other people and encourage them and reach out to them. I close with these words from Psalm 62. 
that I think puts this all in perspective. There that David writes, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Yes, in verse 5, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. If you're dealing with discouragement today, look to God to provide the very things that you need. Rest, refreshment, a refuge, revelation of himself, and responsibility, something to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how practical it is and how applicable it can be in any season. And in particularly, this just seems so relevant. I know this has been true in my own life. The importance of rest, recovering, restoration. Knowing that you do a great work when we can just pull back from some of the tasks and responsibilities that we have. Kind of find ourselves again. Get our legs under us. And you are so gracious, kind, faithful. You see us sometimes down that pit, and you just lift us up, and you set us on a new path. And so, Lord, do that for those of us who are dealing with discouragement today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.